Okay, well, good morning. I'm Raj Rice, and I'm a gynaecologist at, uh, St. Mary, at St. Mary's Hospital. And uh, I've been told, I have to tell you, I'm actually qualified. Uh, so I've been very old. I qualified in 1988 from St. Thomas's, and then had a rather strange training in that I've only ever really worked at St. Mary's and Hammersmith Hospitals. And uh, when I was an SHO, I met Leslie Regan, um, who had a great um, long-standing interest in recurrent miscarriage. And so since uh, about 1995, most of my work has been on uh, recurrent miscarriage and infertility. And that was the title for the talk, just recurrent miscarriage. But you can easily subtitle this talk, Recurrent Miscarriage, from witchcraft to evidence. And the structure of the talk, I divide the talk into three parts. One, to just give you an overview of miscarriage and recurrent miscarriage. Let's give a background. And then move on to highlight the lack of evidence we have for many interventions in the treatment of recurrent miscarriage, which has led to the exploitation of our patients. And then finally, uh, the role of clinical trials in order to ascertain an evidence base and we've just completed a very large NIHR funded study on the use of a simple intervention progesterone which is a hormone been widely used for 50 to 60 years uh, in the treatment of women with miscarriage but it's been used you can buy progesterone from Amazon it's widely prescribed in many countries of the world but is there actually any evidence it actually works so just to start uh, so I'd just like to begin by reminding you that the fate of the fertilised egg is a poor one. Of a hundred human conceptions, and if you recall, you actually conceive, a woman conceives shortly after ovulation, well before menstruation. So of a hundred human conceptions, only 73 of these 100 conceptions actually implant. Only 57 of the 100 conceptions actually become a recognised pregnancy. So a recognised pregnancy for a period of amenorrhea, a woman's missed her period, accompanied by a positive pregnancy test. 51 of the 100 conceptions reach a fetal stage of development, and only 50 of the 100 conceptions, 50%, actually uh, become live birth. So hence, miscarriage uh, is the commonest complication of pregnancy. And the most common uh, cause for any single miscarriage is what's called a random fetal trisomy. So trisomy is when there's a third copy of a particular chromosome in the pregnancy. And in the overwhelming majority of these cases, these are random abnormalities. And the most common abnormality of trisomy you find in miscarriage tissue is trisomy 16, followed by trisomies 22, 21, which is Down syndrome, 15, 18, 1, and 13. So, for example, trisomy 21 Down syndrome, the vast, although we offer screening of women at 10 to 12 weeks in this country in ongoing pregnancies, the majority of Down's pregnancies do in fact miscarry. Now, the risk of miscarriage does increase uh, with female age. So, on this x axis here, we have female age and y axis, the miscarriage rate. So, there's a fairly gentle increase in the miscarriage rate up to the age of 39. In the women 40 to 44, the miscarriage rate is about 50%, and in women over 45 years of age, the miscarriage rate is about 75%. 
and the reason for this mis increasing miscarriage rate with female age is of course because of the increasing rate of random fetal chromosome abnormalities. Now the relevance of this is, as we're all aware, is there's been a significant shift in uh, reproductive patterns. So this is actually UK data between 1994 and 2014. So in the age group of women, uh, 35 to 39, there's been a 62% increase in the, live birth, uh, in the birth rates. In women 40 to 44 years of age, there's been a 94% increase in births. And in those women over 45 years of age, there's been an 86% increase in the birth rate in the UK. And these increases, 94% makes uh, women who are conceiving naturally rather than those having egg donation. So there's been a big shift in the reproductive pattern. So on these graphs here, uh, the mode uh, looks at the referral age, the uh, median referral age of women to have a current miscarriage clinic. So between 1991 and 1995, uh, the modal age was just under 35, 34 years of age. But in the most recent data, as you'd expect, there's been a shift to the right in the yellow bar, so 35, uh, 36 years of age now. And in fact, in the women over 40 years of age, there's been a doubling in referrals to our, uh, to our recurrent miscarriage clinic. So uh, women we see, uh, over <coughs> one quarter of women are over the age of 40. In the private sector, at least 50% of the patients we see are over the age of 40. And of course, so what we're seeing in, the recurrent, in an NH, a large NHS recurrent miscarriage clinic is mirror, mirroring what's happening in the general population. Now, uh, with recurrent miscarriage, some uh, clinicians, regrettably, still insist that recurrent miscarriage is not a distinct problem. Uh, it's not an entity. It's just something that occurs by chance alone. Uh, but there are several pieces of evidence, several strands of evidence, that clearly demonstrate that recurrent miscarriage is a distinct clinical problem rather than merely one occurring by chance alone. And the first piece of evidence is the actual instance of mis recurrent miscarriage, which is three or more consecutive pregnancy losses, is about 1%. And that is significantly higher than that which you'd expect purely by chance alone, which is about 0.34%. And the second piece of evidence that recurrent miscarriage is a distinct problem it comes from this study done in Cambridge, which looked at the risk of recurrence of miscarriage. So if a woman's first pregnancy miscarried, the chance of her next pregnancy also miscarrying is about 20%. If her first two pregnancies miscarried, the chance of the third one miscarrying is higher, at 28%. And if a woman's first three pregnancies miscarried, the chance of a fourth miscarriage is significantly higher, at 43%. So recurrent miscarriage is a distinct clinical problem, rather than one by chance alone. The observed incidence is significantly higher than expected by chance, and the risk of miscarriage increases with the number of miscarriages a woman has had before. Now, miscarriage itself is usually divided, conventionally described, uh, divided into either being sporadic or recurrent. So sporadic miscarriage, as we already said, is the commonest complication of pregnancy. A quarter, 25% of all couples, will experience a single sporadic miscarriage during their reproductive lives. And, as we said, uh, what the, by far and away the most common cause is what's called a random chromosome abnormality. Recurrent miscarriage, 1%. 
the risk of recurrent miscarriage increases with female age and the number of previous miscarriages. In contrast to sporadic miscarriage, couples with recurrent miscarriage tend to lose normal pregnancies, chromosomally normal pregnancies. And of course, this is associated with significant psychological sequelae. And as uh, studies have shown, that instance of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is similar in both men and women. And of course, it's the men, and we'll show you some data about the male role in the pathogenesis of pregnancy loss in a moment, uh, is often ignored. Now, the importance of studying uh, miscarriage as well is that miscarriage is closely related to infertility, failure to conceive, and also with later pregnancy problems. Uh, so a quarter of women with recurrent miscarriages also have difficulties in conceiving. Uh, couples with miscarriage and infertility increase with uh, age and miscarriage rate. And a longer deterioration of infertility, so the longer a particular pregnancy takes to conceive, the higher the risk of miscarriage. And also, the risk of miscarriage is increased uh, following uh, assisted conception techniques. So, for example, standard IVF, supposed IVF and genetic screening, is not the treatment for miscarriage, because one of the prices, not monetary or financial price for IVF, is the miscarriage rate is actually higher. And miscarriages, uh, pregnancies in women that have recurrent miscarriages <coughs> are prone to later pregnancy complications, high risk of preeclampsia, which is raised blood pressure uh, in pregnancy, growth restriction, preterm labour, and stillbirth. So the real importance of studying miscarriage, and also in particular recurrent miscarriage, is it forms one part of this spectrum of implantation failure. So on the left of the spectrum we have couples, unfortunately we all carry labels like are said to have infertility, couples who have first trimester miscarriage, second trimester miscarriage, and then these later complications, preeclampsia, growth restriction, preterm delivery. So what links all of these things, infertility, late pregnancy complications, is defects in the implantation of the embryo. So uh, obstetricians, for example, are uh, specialists who just look after pregnant women. Uh, the first time an obstetrician sees a pregnant woman may be 10 or 12 weeks. And of course, as you know, in obst obstetrics, it's actually quite a backward specialty. There's very little an obstetrician can do uh, to salvage a pregnancy. And that's because uh, they ignore that the fate of the pregnancy is actually determined at four, five, six weeks. And in fact, we and other groups have data that show that the fate, uh, if you look at the endometrium, the lining of the womb, uh, prior to conception, it's totally different. Uh, uh, what's called uh, endometrial gene profiling is totally different in women with miscarriages compared to those who've uh, no such history. Now, despite the importance of recurrent miscarriage, investigation and treatment has been based on anecdotal evidence, historical beliefs, and the results of small, uncontrolled studies. And these three major limitations, anecdotal evidence, historical beliefs, personal bias, uncontrolled studies, have led to treatments of no proven efficacy, and some of these treatments have subsequently been shown to actually be harmful. And it's always the women who have subjected to treatments, of course. Some of these treatments have subsequently been shown to be harmful to the women. And really, this is unacceptable. Now, uh, for the next, I hope that's a useful just overview of miscarriage. And now, there is evidence for some causes of miscarriage. And 
uh, what's contemporary uh, uh, in the field of recurrent miscarriage is the relationship between blood clotting abnormalities, so hypercoagulability and pregnancy loss. And this uh, started uh, with the realisation that in all pregnancies, all women's blood becomes thicker and more likely to clot. And the evolutionary advantage of that is that the actual attachment between the placenta and the wall of the uterus is actually quite tenuous. So an increase in blood clotting or coagulability is a normal response in pregnancy. And uh, back in the mid-1990s, we looked at a particular antibody called antiphospholipid antibodies and miscarriage. And antiphospholipid syndrome uh, refers to the association between two antiphospholipid antibodies called lupus anticoagulant and anticardiolipin antibodies and miscarriage. Uh, this still remains, 20 years later, the most important treatable cause of recurrent miscarriage. Uh, 15% or 1 in 7 women with recurrent miscarriage have antiphospholipid <coughs> syndrome. And in untreated pregnancies, if a woman has this syndrome and it's either unrecognised or untreated, she does very badly uh, with a prospective fetal loss rate of being reported to be as high as 90%. And in those few pregnancies that actually progress, there's a very high instance of preterm delivery. And until quite recently, uh, it was thought that the pathogenesis, why miscarriage occurs these antibodies, is because of thrombosis. And uh, this shows uh, first trimester, uh, so, uh, before 12 weeks, the city of blood vessel. And this red area here is thrombosis. You do see thrombosis on blood clots in the blood vessels. Uh, central blood vessels. And uh, towards the end of the 1990s, uh, for my MD thesis, I did a randomised study uh, comparing aspirin and heparin treatment with aspirin alone in treatment with miscarriage uh, and phospholipid syndrome. And this is what's called a survival plot. So long hair, we have the number, uh, sorry, the week's gestation. So all pregnancies start off at five, the five weeks gestation and along the y-axis to ongoing pregnancies. So in red hair, if a woman had no treatment, they had very high miscarriage rate, low life birth rate. If they were treated with aspirin alone, the line was higher, but aspirin and heparin showing black hair, it was even higher. So the interpretation from this graph is that women with miscarriages who have antiphospholipid antibodies, the treatment of choice is aspirin and heparin. Now, the important thing in this chart well, one important thing is if you draw a line here at about 12 weeks of pregnancy and look to the right of the line, uh, these three lines, the black, blue and the red lines, are effectively parallel. So what this means is that heparin, uh, do you know what heparin is? It's an, it's an anticoagulant, must be acting in this part. Yes. Now, the slight problem with that is that heparin, the reason we used heparin is because it's a blood thinner, essentially. But in fact, there's no blood flow between mother and baby uh, before eight or even nine weeks of gestation. There is no blood flow. So the question is, how does heparin, this blood thinner, actually improve the pregnancy rate? And our uh, results of our study have subsequently been confirmed by others and with this meta-analysis. So certainly uh, there's a wealth of data that aspirin and heparin is the treatment combination of choice. But the question is, how does it work? 
So the purpose of showing this slide is just to show how a well-known drug, heparin, can have different functions. So heparin is an anticoagulant. I've locked it up, but heparin also has non-anticoagulant actions. So if you look at the non-anticoagulant actions of heparin, and this is all um, in vitro work in the laboratory, heparin decreases the rate of trophoblast or placental cell death. So women with miscarriages, there's a much higher rate of trophoblast apoptosis. That's decreased with heparin. <coughs> heparin also inhibits uh, the complement-mediated damage to the placenta, and the net effect of heparin is to promote implantation of the embryo. Now, this work on antiphospholipid antibodies then um, expanded to look more generically at a women uh, at other blood clotting abnormalities. I'm sorry about Can you see the red here? Yeah. So what we look at here at TAC levels is thrombin levels in three groups of women. Uh, women who had uncomplicated pregnancies, those with phospholipid antibodies, and those with miscarriages who didn't have phospholipid antibodies. And what this shows is that women with miscarriages, two groups, irrespective of whether they had these antibodies or not, had much higher levels of thrombin prior to pregnancy. And this work was then extended by uh, Gordon Smith, who's a professor in Cambridge, to look at the risk of ischemic heart disease in women with miscarriages. So we've shown that women with miscarriages are pro-thrombotic, they're more likely to clot, even outside of pregnancy. And Gordon Smith's data show in women who've never had a miscarriage, uh, their risk of uh, skin heart disease so has a ratio of unity. If a woman had one or two miscarriages, the history of that, she had a 1.44% increase in her risk of ischemic heart disease in later life. And in women who had three or more miscarriages, there was a 2.3-fold increase in their risk of heart disease. So miscarriage, not just the pregnancy itself, but a history of miscarriage is also a predictive factor uh, for uh, ischemic heart disease in later life. Now, uh, just very briefly, we've shown you phospholipid antibodies, aspirin, heparin works. We've shown you that women with miscarriages are pro-thrombotic prior to pregnancy. Now, part of those things, these tests are all terribly expensive. So a good question is, well, why bother with all these tests? Why don't you just give all women either aspirin alone or aspirin and heparin? And uh, the answer to this was uh, from this Dutch study published in a New England journal called the Life Study. And what uh, uh, these investigators were looking at is they looked at three groups of women. So all women had recurrent miscarriages, all women were thoroughly investigated and no cause to their miscarriages was found. And they were then randomised to either being treated with aspirin and heparin, aspirin alone, or placebo. And what you can see is the highest live births were in those receiving placebo. Yeah? So the answer isn't to give everyone with miscarriages aspirin. Yeah? And in fact, one interpretation of that is if you give them either aspirin alone or aspirin and heparin, at best it is of no benefit to them, which is fine, I can live with that clinically, but much more, more importantly, you may actually be decreasing their chance of a healthy child by up to 18-20%. Yeah. 
So don't give them all aspirin or aspirin heparin. Now, just uh, as an aside, uh, for the lab people, uh, so thrombin uh, also uh, affects central function and uh, increases angiogenesis formation in blood vessels. Thrombin generation leads to increased rates of central cell death and uh, ultimately uh, decrease implantation of the embryo. So antiphospholipid antibodies is one of the few clear identifiable treatments for miscarriage. Now, if you look at, we've talked about female age, but no one really talks about age in men. And uh, we've been more recently been interested in uh, the male contribution to miscarriage, and in particular in something called sperm DNA fragmentation. Now, the reason for this, so once again, this is UK data from 2013, and here you're looking in the yellow bars is the age of the mothers, and in this uh, awful red here, uh, you're looking at the age of the man. Yes. So this is not women with miscarriages, this is the UK population data. Okay. So as you can see, there are a hell of a lot of older men becoming fathers. Yeah. And there's been this whole shit. So it's not women, just women are getting older, delaying child, delaying motherhood. Men are also delaying uh, fatherhood as well. Now, the relevance of this is that as men get older, there's an increase in the rate of sperm DNA damage. And increasing male age is associated with an increased time to conception. Increasing male age increased sperm DNA fragmentation, poor embryo development. So as you, uh, as you may know, so once the, once the egg is fertilised within uh, the first 24 hours, the oocyte, the egg, actually has to perform over 20,000 DNA repair operations. Yeah. And so that's why poor uh, embryo development, high rate of miscarriage and malformation and also with advancing pat what's called advancing paternal age, which is taken as being 40 or more, there's uh, increased risk of childhood cancers, has certainly been shown. And I think what's quite widely accepted is that children born uh, to older fathers, there's an increase in the rate of autism and also an increase in the rate of schizophrenia. So rather than just looking at the female age, uh, we really should be looking at what's called couple age, which is just very simply maternal and paternal age combined. And what causes uh, DNA damage are things like smoking, alcohol, cannabis, obesity, steroids, but also advancing paternal age. And uh, there are various tests or assays <coughs> to look at DNA fragmentation. Uh, this is called a comet uh, test. But this shows intact undamaged DNA, and the comet's like this tail here, which has a high level of uh, DNA fragmentation, DNA damage. And I think we've done that. And this is just a, a result of a meta-analysis, uh, which looks at the relationship between sperm DNA damage and miscarriage. So I hope that was a little bit of help to you, uh, just as an overview of miscarriage where we're going. So turning to the second part of the lecture about the lack of evidence we have and this lack of evidence leading to exploitation of patients. If I may just read this to you. Uh, in modern times, the exploitation of the expectations of the sick 
for a cure have been so increased by the successes of science that even the most outrageous quackery markets itself with scientific jargon. So over the years, women have been miscarrying given aspirin. Don't know what the matter with you is. Why don't you take aspirin? Heparin. They've been given steroids. Uh, the problem with steroids is there's actually a court case going through at the moment uh, where a woman was given steroids for treatment for miscarriages. Absolutely no basis whatsoever. We'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, but that woman had, uh, it's an unfortunate case, latent TB. Uh, and again, cerebral TB, and she's actually uh, put in uh, southeast England at the moment. So aspirin, heparin, steroids, uh, metformin, widely used as an anti-diabetes drug. And what I'm going to concentrate on is something called killer cells, intravenous immunoglobulin, intralipids, progesterone, a whole variety of drugs uh, have been chucked at women with miscarriages. Now, uh, when I, uh, most of the patients I see uh, were probably seen one or two or even three consultants before. And uh, most patients I see, uh, uh, they don't really listen to anything I have to say. All they're listening, all they're waiting for me to say is which dose of which drug I'm going to double or which drug of this huge uh, cocktail I will act. Okay. And so the misfortune in the first place is actually uh, coming across the medical profession. So unfortunately you have an early miscarriage at five weeks, go and see the doctor who feels a bit vulnerable and says, oh, why don't you take an aspirin? Miscarries again, goes back to the same doctor, especially in the private sector, who feels a bit more vulnerable, I told them to take aspirin, then puts her in heparin, miscarries again, goes to see a different doctor, sticks her on steroids. So by the time they see me, it's waiting to see which dose of aspirin I'm going to double or whatever. And so it comes to a bit of a shock when they say, well, you've taken all these drugs, why do you want to take any of them? Why don't you stop? Some of them aren't happy. Now, uh, so that's that exploitation. And also we have to be terribly careful because with newspapers and social media, uh, they actually want banner headlines and excitement. Um, actual public information is nowhere on their agenda. So our patients at the Metro, I don't know if you're at Metro in Oxford, but in London it's a free newspaper, and like, you know, £20 miracle that made me a mother after 18 miscarriages, fetogenic woman, nice baby. What they're actually talking about is these killer cells that come back to our miracle baby, daughter Joy for couple after the pain of losing seven children in three years. And uh, this is actually from the Daily Mail, my miracle mayonnaise baby. So, uh, you know, once again, photogenic woman, nice baby, slightly older woman, so you two can have a baby. Uh, that's the gynecologist there. Uh, and the key bit I liked was uh, style, well, who actually styles them there. Uh, but, you know, this, this is the... Uh, uh, do you read... Does anyone read the Daily Mail? No. Oh, I do. It's brilliant. It's actually the most powerful <coughs> news website because I refuse to pay my £2 a week for the Times online. The Daily Mail is actually free. So if you're a gynecologist, you've actually got to be reading the Daily Mail. Uh, it tells you what's actually going on. Uh, so it's the miracle... Uh, mayonnaise, babies, uh, floral dress, well, I don't want to have a floral dress now anyway, uh, hops or whatever. Uh, not a nice suit, but never mind. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but this is actually what our patients are confronted with. So just uh, two more quotes, just to read you. Uh, from now on, and what do you see in miscarriage? Mis you'll see in IVF services as well. From now on, you're just one more minnow swimming about in the maelstrom of an infertility business estimated to be worth £3 billion uh, pounds globally and rising. 
shopping for facts and certainties when all you can really do is grasp at hopes and dreams. And just finally, uh, which will be relevant to what we'll move on to, is don't trust the science done by the people who are trying to sell them to you and don't assume if some is good, more must be better. So just bear, bear that in mind while we just talk. So what they're actually talking about uh, is a field, uh, a controversial field of reproductive immunology. Now, there are actually only a couple of reproductive immunologists in the UK, one of whom is sitting in our audience here, uh, who was, uh, and then Chris Redmond uh, from Oxford, and that's about it. So if you actually look at this Daily Mail headline about miracle babies... This gentleman's apparently head on the world's global reproductive immunologists uh, working with someone called a fertility midwife and introducing this treatment. It's all nonsense. Okay. So, but if you take about, uh, talk about reproductive immunology, of course, human pregnancy it represents a, a, a unique challenge. And uh, what's been uh, said for many, many years is this paradox of the fetus as an allograft. So that in pregnancy, uh, for the fetus will be half foreign, of course, it contains half the father's genetic information, develops in a specialised organ in the uterus. It's protected uh, by its own because of barrier deciduous, the lining of the womb, and uh, they're deported uh, central and fetal cells and maternal circulation. But this concept of the fetus as an allograft isn't a new one. It dates back uh, to 1924 with C.C. Little, who's an American, who posed the question that the female mammal must in some way be able to tolerate the growth of her foreign embryo. And in 1953, Peter Medwa... Uh, do you know Peter Medwa? Uh, he's a transplant immunologist and a Nobel laureate uh, in uh, post-Western in New York is how does the pregnant mother continue to nourish within itself for many weeks or months a fetus that is antigenetically a foreign body? And what then developed was the enigma of the human allograft of pregnancy. And we've done that. And so the historical uh, view of... Uh, I'll move on to that, actually. So the historical view of reproductive immunology, that pregnancy uh, and the immune system are depicted as armies and weaponries with which a mother engages in a struggle with the fetus. So that for the pregnancy to survive, there's this epic battle or struggle between mother and fetus. Uh, but this is unlikely as viviparities. So viviparities where you give birth to the child. The opposite of that, of course, is laying an egg. Uh, so vivid parenting facilitation formation centre developed long after the immune system was put in place. You know, it makes, it literally, it makes no sense to have a system that's attacking or killing the baby if how we're judged is how much of our genetic information we transmit to future generations. So a contemporary or more informed view of reproductive immunology is that reproductive immunology is a cooperation, a cooperative venture between the mother and the baby rather than this uh, battle for survival. So uh, I'm just going to illustrate this with a particular test uh, that's done in a couple of, uh, or many, uh, several IVF units and several recurrent miscarriage clinics. Uh, but the underlying tenet is always remember <coughs> the patient's 
expectations and answers are ever increasing. And it really is incumbent upon us as scientists, researchers, clinicians uh, to protect our patients from treatments for which there's no evidence of benefit and which are largely based on pseudoscience. And what we're actually talking about and in those uh, couple of images from the newspapers about miracle babies, is about something called natural killer cells. And uh, these cells were first described in 1975, and they used to be called large granular, that's just a transmission electron micrograph of a NK natural killer cell. They used to be called large granular lymphocytes. But of course, it's much more emotive uh, to call them your yeah, killer cells. And in London at the moment, you can have your killer cells measured in your blood for about £750. And just very briefly, there are two types, this very broad description, two types of natural killer cells. Some you find in the blood uh, and a different type you find in the uterus. And the blood natural killer cells are totally different to the ones uh, you find in the uterus. But what's been measured is the levels in the blood. And uh, there's no relationship between what's measured in the blood and what's measured in the uterus. And uh, we've shown, we've published that measuring natural killer cells in the blood uh, has no, there's no difference in the live birth rate uh, natural killer cells. Now, this is slightly good. Now, if you want to know how good, sorry about this, if you want to know, sorry about that white patch, if you want to know how good a test is, uh, you, you form what's called a rock curve. Uh, which is uh, the sensitivity against uh, one minus the specificity, and you look at the area on the rock curve. Uh, so if there's no relationship between what you're measuring and outcome, the area on the curve will be 0.5. Yeah. And if there's a good correlation, uh, area on the curves like that, you know, 0.95 or so forth. So for markers, say for cancer, ovarian cancer and so forth, you really want your rock curve your area under the curve to be 0.9599 or so forth. So a perfect test is usually the worthless test is 0.5. So the best data on measuring NK cells in the blood and miscarriage, the area under the curve is only 0.6, which is a little different tossing a coin. So there's actually a lot of published data now, in fact, there are 25 published studies, 25 that show no relationship uh, between natural killer cell levels in the blood and pregnancy outcomes. So, yet the question is why are uh, uh, many clinicians still ordering the test? Now, part of the problem with natural killer cell testing in blood is we don't actually know what an abnormal level is. It all comes from one paper, apparently, which quotes a figure of 12%. In fact, you can read and read and reread this paper. There's absolutely no way you can work back how this figure of 12% comes along. Uh, measuring natural killer cells in the blood depends on the, what type of blood sample it is, the time of the day the sample is taken, any physical exercise. So running from Regent's Park tube station to your Harley Street lab, as you're two minutes late and you've got to see Professor X or Y, pushes up your NK cells. Levels, NK cell levels depend on the number of babies you've had before, what type of tubes you're using, and they're measured using something called fax analysis. Now, more important, or quite interestingly, so it's a pretty worthless test. Yes, there's no relationship, lots of difficulties with testing. But this is quite a nice study uh, which looked at NK cell levels 
uh, in two groups of women. So the open bars are women who have successful pregnancies, and the black bars women with miscarriages. Now, the, uh, if you remember, very clever things in life are very obvious once someone else has thought about it. So this is a study from Israel published in Human Reproduction, which is one of the high-impact journals in um, reproductive medicine. So what was clever about it is that he took well, these two groups of women, controls and miscarriage, and put a fenflon in. Do you know what a fenflon is? Yeah? I, uh, it's a needle in, yes? Which stays in, yes? It's a hollow needle, yes? Or two. And so at time zero, when, as they had these two groups of women, approached both with a big needle, essentially, and took a blood sample. And in women with miscarriages, there was a much higher level of natural killer cells compared to the control groups uh, when he took his first sample. Now, the key thing is he then left his needle in, yes? Put it back, and then he took the second blood sample only 15 minutes later, yes? And on the second blood sample taken only 15 minutes later, there was absolutely no difference in natural killer cell levels or activity between the two groups. So what you're actually seeing is that uh, natural killer cells express what are called adrenergic receptors, receptors for adrenaline and noradrenaline and so forth. So it's well recognised that women with reproductive difficulties, infertility or miscarriage, have an exaggerated response to stress. So if someone's coming up to you with a great big needle and puts it in, uh, have higher levels, a higher activity, only 15 minutes later, there was nothing. Okay, so very little evidence based on what we do in miscarriages. This has led to exploitation of couples, lots of treatments, absolutely no scientific validity to the vast majority of them, lots of expense, and we're peddling false hopes and treatments. It's essentially what we're doing. So the question then is, well, how do you get the treatments? Uh, sorry, how do you get the evidence for any treatment? And how you're going to get the evidence of treatments in any branch of medicine is by doing clinical trials. And a clinical trial, uh, this is definition of a clinical trial, uh, which I'll leave you to read. Uh, that's definition of a clinical trial. But the importance of clinical trials, especially in uh, reproductive medicine, as I said, there's a paucity of evidence upon which to guide investigation and treatment. So, for example, in IVF, for example, uh, recently introducing something called endometrial scratch, where they actually just scratch the lining of the womb, apparently improves your pregnancy rates. Uh, we can do time-lapse embryo incubation. Uh, what that is, is we actually looking at the embryo. We can sell it as an adjunct to an IVF cycle. And you buy the embryo scope to look at the embryos developing. Any evidence for it? Well, pretty dodgy. Uh, and, for example, with uh, various uterine malformations, something called the uterine septum, which is like a tongue of tissue coming into the uterus, many uh, should we be subjecting these women to surgical division of these septums before IVF. And the point, for example, with septum division, it's quite complex surgery. Uh, we do a lot of it. Uh, but, in fact, when you operate, you don't really know where you're cutting. You can actually call, uh, render that woman effectively infertile. There's no evidence to do it. Uh, but the lack of evidence opens our specialty to accusations of exploiting our patients. And as we said, uh, historically, uh, some interventions uh, have been harmful to our patients. Now, setting up, so what I'm going to just describe in this last part 
is a very large study we did in progesterone. Now, when you're setting up a clinical trial, there's lots of legislation about setting up clinical trials, and this is just a small snippet of the various tests and approvals and organisations you've got to go through to setting up a, a proper uh, clinical trial. So it's actually quite an undertaking, and I'm just going to illustrate this. This is a trial we've just finished called the PROMISE trial, uh, which is progesterone and early pregnancy loss. Now, there's actually a lot of money in thinking of acronyms like PROMISE uh, for clinical trials. And in fact, that name is now going to be uh, using names like PROMISE actually uh, frowned upon now to make it false hope to patients. Uh, but this was a trial, uh, I was the chief investigator in it, and we were able to obtain funding for one and a half million from uh, the NI, uh, National Institute of Health Research for it. Now, first of all, is there a basis for... Pro- Do you know what progesterone is? Yeah, so it's basically a hormone. Uh, is there a basis for progesterone in early pregnancy? So progesterone is produced throughout the menstrual cycle, in fact. Uh, so in the follicular phase of the cycle, that part of the cycle before ovulation, so before the woman can see is produced by the adrenal cortex. After ovulation, which is called the luteal phase of the cycle, is produced by something called a corpus luteum. And in preg- uh, after eight weeks of pregnancy, progesterone is produced by the trophoblast or the placenta. And progesterone, we know, is uh, key in the establishment and maintenance of uh, pregnancy. And this is just a cartoon. So uh, we know uh, that progesterone in the second half of the cycle transforms the endometrium, the lining of the womb, to becoming receptive uh, to actually receive the embryo. And also progesterone inhibits uh, natural killer cell activity. It alters something called a cytokine balance to make it a more favourable response. And it also upregulates blood clotting. So there are lots of reasons for progesterone. And also we know progesterone is important in pregnancy, but we can use what murine or mouse knock out models. And there are two types of progesterone receptors, A and B. And if you knock out uh, progesterone receptor A, so they have no, doesn't work, uh, you get impaired deciduilization of the, of the lining of the womb and implantation failure. So there's hard scientific data for progesterone. Clinically, we know that if you remove the corpus luteum, which is part of the ovary, uh, before eight weeks gestation, uh, the blood progesterone levels fall <coughs> and miscarriage results. We also know if you remove the corpus luteum, the progesterone levels drop, miscarriage occurs, but if you give exogenous progesterone, uh, you can actually rescue the pregnancy. And also we know that uh, giving an anti-progesterone, such as mifepristone, leads to pregnancy loss. Also, as I said, progesterone has been used for 50 or 60 years. And we know that in pregnancies in which a woman's blood progesterone level is low, those pregnancies are much more likely to end in miscarriage. So all that's been known for several just, um, generations. So... There's a cardinal role in early pregnancy, low progesterone levels implicated in pregnancy loss. And this has all led to the expectation that giving women progesterone uh, can prevent or decrease their risk of miscarriage. Uh, Now, 
progesterone is taken from widely prescribed by doctors in uh, the UK, the United States, Russia in particular. And what's the evidence for it? Well, since 1953, there have only been four studies looking at progesterone. Only four studies. And all four studies have shown or suggested a significant beneficial effect of progesterone. But all four studies, they had small numbers of patients, no standardization treatment protocols. They included women with only two rather than three miscarriages. They didn't stratify the patients by the female age or by the number of miscarriages they'd had. And they all used different types of progesterone. So uh, back in 2009, when we started this trial, um, there was a basis for it. The existing trial suggested a large benefit in a common condition, and progesterone is cheap. Uh, the Royal College and the Cochrane Reviews all called for a large trial. Before setting up this trial, we had to do a survey of UK clinicians, and there was what's called equipoise. So clinicians in the UK, half of them gave progesterone, half of them didn't. The ones that gave it didn't know why they were giving it, and the ones that weren't giving it didn't know why they weren't recommending it. Uh, so there's equipoise about progesterone, but... If progesterone was of benefit, it would represent a low-cost, safe and easily deliverable therapy to prevent or decrease the rate of miscarriage. Uh, so we set up what's called a PROMISE study, and the principal objective of the PROMISE study was to test the, test the hypothesis that amongst women with unexplained miscarriages, the progesterone supplementation, starting from time of positive pregnancy test, and continuing until 12 weeks, 12 weeks gestation increased the life birth rate by at least 10% compared to placebo. And the trial designed it as a randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled study. So this uh, sort of trial is said to be the gold standard, randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled. But as you may want to discuss later, there's a problem with uh, having placebos in trials, yeah, there's a big problem having placebos in trials, and this isn't necessarily gold standard, but it's accepted to be the gold standard. Initially, we had seven centres, six in England, one in Holland, and for this minimally, MID was called minimally important difference of 10%, we'd have to recruit 790 patients. So, so we started off with seven centres, and we ended up with something because of recruitment difficulties and so forth, with over 40 centres throughout the UK, and we also had 10 centres in Holland. Uh, now, it's quite useful having a uh, centre in a different country because when we analyse the data, uh, and we have done for this, uh, there are actually differences in the life, significant differences in the life birth rates between the Dutch centres, for example, and the UK centres. But that's, that's a little bit. So it's a proper study. Uh, include, we include women, they all have had three miscarriages, less than 39 years. We had as our cut off, as we showed after 40, miscarriages very high. They all had to conceive naturally, a uh, variety of exclusion criteria. And the end point, uh, the primary end point, the simple one, uh, the life birth rate beyond 24 weeks of pregnancy and the variety of secondary outcomes. Pregnancy 38 weeks, 13 weeks, survival 28 days, neonatal life and so forth. Now the timeline is quite interesting. So we actually started, so we actually applied... Uh, I think early 2009, we were actually awarded the grant. 
Well, we actually started it in the first patient was randomised in October 2000. Uh, sorry, the drug activated in October 2009. The trial the first patient was only randomised in August 2010, so the number of sites had to be increased dramatically. Um, we actually recruited 1,500 women and randomised 836. You may remember had to uh, randomise 790. We actually got to 836, and the trial closed in October 2014, and uh, it's going to be published in the New Journal next month. Okay, so I know I've been giving this lecture to all prior players there, and you get invited to give all these lectures all over the place, and all everyone wants to say, "What's the bloody result?" <laughs> so I, uh, the last lecture I gave was "Promise Unfulfilled." Uh, <laughs> I, I I can't actually tell you the result because someone else will kill it. Uh, someone will kill me. I think they may. I'm sure they're going around telling everyone else the result, uh, but. Uh, but just at the timeline, yeah, so October 09 to, so what's that, six years to do this study. It actually took six years to do it, yeah, and it's a placebo trial. Now, one of the problems with the trial is if it shows that progesterone is a benefit, yeah, that's great. Safe, simple, cheap, yeah, and the world will be given progesterone. The other problem, though, is if it shows progesterone is not superior. Yes? That'll be a bit of a problem. Uh, not because it's be a negative result, that they're just as important, but it all comes back to using the placebo. Yes? Uh, so, as I said, these trial designs where placebos are taken as being the gold standard in conditions in which there's a, what's called a high spontaneous resolution rate, like miscarriages. Yeah? High spontaneous resolution rate. Having a placebo will mask or may potentially mask the true benefit of your intervention. But, that, uh, uh, but that's the thing. So just to summarise, uh, what I hope I've shared a bit with you is about the <coughs> genesis of miscarriage, emphasising uh, also the male factor, the dangers of giving women aspirin, who don't need it, uh, the alternative roles or modalities of uh, heparin in improving pregnancy outcome. And then we moved on to emphasising the lack of evidence base and exploitation of women and their partners for that, and how it is absolutely possible. So that if you go to these IVF units or these fertility meetings and they say, well, why don't you do a randomised trial of intralipid is just this A stuff. Why don't you do it? The same dance they come back, it wouldn't be them to be randomised. Yes? That's bullshit. Yeah? Because they can actually just buy progesterone from Amazon. Yeah? Yeah? They can just buy it. Yeah? So they are happy to be randomised. So a lot of it actually has to do with the patients having confidence in the clinician or the scientist, uh, whoever's actually talking to them. Yeah? And one of the problems to say in IVF units, you may know IVF, uh, the role of gynecology, our role isn't great. You know, we scan, pick up, transfer, or whatever. The key role in IVF is the embryologist. You know. And it may seem so in the States, uh, your IVF clinic, you'll see both the gynecologist and the embryologist. You know. In m most, perhaps not all, but in most units in this, in this country, the key person is the embryologist. It's all hidden away. And 
there you go. I hope that's a little bit of help for you. Okay, thank you.